Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm um, excited to welcome another special guest to the Jude 3 Project, uh, Dr. Antipas Harris. Welcome, Dr. Harris. Thank you for being here. It's a great opportunity to have a conversation. Awesome. I'm excited about it. And today, uh, uh, before we get into our subject today, tell our audience um, who may not be familiar with you just a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Antipas Harris, and uh, I'm the founder and dean of the Urban Renewal Center uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. I am uh, was a professor for 10 years at uh, university. I taught uh, practical theology and um, love the Lord, been in ministry for uh, 25 years, and um, and just having fun doing God's work. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, again for uh, being with us today. And today we're going to talk about a subject uh, that I think is necessary for us to understand a little bit more about church history in America and especially in the African-American context, Um, the contributions and the history of the holiness Church, and I know you've done writing on this. That's how I, ca- I came across it on your Instagram. We've been, I've been following you for a while, but I thought that you had a paper on it, um, and I thought that was really interesting. Uh, what what inspired you to really study this subject and 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 write on it? Well, the, I was born and raised in the uh, Holiness Pentecostal Church. My dad's uh, founding pastor of, the, of a House of Living God Church, Jesus Christ, down in Manchester, Georgia. So all of my life, I've been Holiness Pentecostal. And um, so when I felt the call to theological education, uh, I went to seminary, and I found it always difficult for me to, to connect with the scholarship because uh, there wasn't a lot of folk writing about the Black Holiness Pentecostal um, church, particularly from a theological or in the New Testament studies, biblical studies. And so I've always, uh, early days, struggled to figure out where are those places that I can connect the God of my knowing with what was in scholarship. And um, so out of that struggle, uh, I developed a passion, and that is to 
to be the voice, to write about, to explain uh, how the Holiness Pentecostal Church was formed, some of the challenges, uh, how it connects with the broader Black church, and then ultimately how the voice that it contributes to the broader landscape of, of Christianity in our society and in our world. The largest uh, segment of Christianity is charismatic, and it draws upon the Black Holiness Pentecostal tradition in one way or the other. Uh, so, and of course, now the center of Christianity is in the global south. But um, but if you even study uh, Christianity in the global south, the, uh, the there is a correlation and probably part of the influence, a large part of the influence of the of Christianity in the global south, were, uh, came from the Black Holiness Pentecostal tradition, and that's not stated frequently. It's not celebrated, uh, and it's not always in present in scholarship. So um, I, I feel like uh, I'm called to, to be a voice in that space. Mm. And I think that's really important. I grew up a non-denominational Pentecostal. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you go to seminary, it's kind of like, you know, you're, there's caricatures of, of, of uh, charismatic and Pentecostal folks. So um, it's almost... Uh, people assuming that people that are Pentecostal or charismatic are anti-scholarship um, in a sense. Well, I, I, think, I think there should be something, I'm glad you said that, because there was, there is a strand, not only in Pentecostalism, but in evangelicalism in large, there's a strand of people, or there's a tradition that is anti-intellectual, partly because of the way that academic was, was, academics were framed in the early 1900s. Uh, and that um, this sort of higher criticism was uh, was basically it was it ran contrary to the way that the spirit was moving in the church. Instead of higher criticism, trying to understand and conceptualize uh, intellectualism from the bottom up, uh, it basically posed a triumphalism, a, an approach to academics that ran counter to a way of knowing or epistemology that came from, from the bottom up. So instead of the Pentecostal movement throughout the early 1900s sort of rethinking what intellectualism was about, much of it just sort of threw out the baby with the bathwater. And uh, so I think one gift of the 21st century is to pause and say, you know, we are anti-intellectual for a reason. And I think it was a legitimate reason based on the sort of the control of the academy uh, coming out of the 1800s into the early 1900s. But um, what um, Pentecostal scholarship uh, sort of freezes the moment and says, you know what, there is embedded within Pentecostalism a strong intellectualism that needs to be articulated and it needs to be affirmed. And in many ways, it transforms, it leads in transforming the way that we think about education today. Because education broadly has to rethink itself, and it cannot simply be this sort of tri European triphalism, but it needs to be uh, a way of understanding academics from the bottom up. And we know that, particularly in the United States, with the influx of diversity and experiences that people have that influences the way that we understand um, education, period, but mm -hmm. uh, theological education in particular. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, when we talk about uh, the history of the um, of the holiness movement, where do you like to begin? 
Well, uh, of course, my particular um, history, uh, the history of my um, experience dates back to Azusa Street, um, just from a, um, from a heritage perspective. Uh, however, when we think about Pentecostalism, we must not restrict it to Azusa Street in the early 1900s, because one, Pentecostalism really does find itself back to Acts chapter number two. Uh, so we can't sort of lay a claim on it being an, uh, an American phenomenon. It's a move of the spirit that's starting Acts. And then broadly speaking, uh, there were movements all around the world, even before Azusa Street of the spirit, movements of the spirit. In fact, it never stopped moving. You can trace elements of Pentecostalism throughout church history. Uh, so I think that for me personally, um, my dad planted our church uh, after he was born again in the Church of God in Christ. The founder of the Church of God in Christ was born again at Azusa Street. So that direct um, uh, historical um, relationship to Azusa Street. But we must not simply think that Pentecostalism is an American phenomenon that started in the 1900s, because that's just not true. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about those movements uh, earlier through church history, are there some specifics that you could that you could point us to? Well, I think there were not always movements per se. It was strands of it. Um, we can, I mean, we can talk about Tertullian and uh, one of the church fathers. We can talk about uh, even in the broader Catholic tradition, there were folks there that uh, had experiences of speaking in tongues. Uh, there in the medieval era, there were folks who had these experiences. We think about Saint John of the Cross. We think about um, you know, Teresa of Avila, uh, all of them had some charismatic type experiences. We can't always say, see, they were speaking in tongues necessarily, but certainly there was the presence of the spirit that was among them and causing all types of manifestations. Um, we can talk about, um, uh, you know, um, John Wesley, uh, the, his Alders Gate experience. It's not always clear exactly what that experience was, but it seemed as if he had some encounter with the spirit. Um, you know, so, um, you know, uh, John Calvin, um, these are reformers, John Calvin. Uh, he had some experiences that seemed to imply that there was some charismatic expression present in his, in his, in his uh, life. Not always clear, partly because what we now call the Pentecostal experience of speaking in tongues, um, for many throughout church history, that was just part of what it meant to be a person uh, of God. So they didn't always say explicitly what the experience was, because if they varied the spirit, they subjected themselves to whatever, the, whatever experience the spirit gave them. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, um, I think that's helpful. When, when we're thinking about holiness, uh, how would you define that? Um, well, the language of holiness can be understood in a variety of ways. One, of course, I came again out of the Black Holiness Pentecostal tradition that traces its origins back to the Wesleyan strand of of, uh, of the church. So um, the notion of holiness was heavily influenced by John Wesley's understanding of holiness. However, uh, John Wesley was not the only one who valued holiness. Uh, John Calvin valued holiness. Holiness was um, was central to what it meant to be a Presbyterian. The Puritans came here to this country. They were heavily influenced. They would come out of the Presbyterian background, and they, the Puritans were all about holiness, personal piety. Uh, 
I think one, uh, they had different emphasis, emphasis, of course, because John Wesley had more of a, he said there is no holiness, but social holiness. So he found a way to think about personal piety, pairing personal piety with a social way of thinking about holiness, how we treat other people as a part of what it means to be holy. Um, and that strand is what heavily influenced at least my tradition. Um, but holiness itself really dates back to the Old Testament. I mean, God is the one who said, be holy for I am holy. And the way we understood that throughout the years has been different ways. Now, in the holiness Pentecostal tradition, holiness took upon a very practical dynamic. And sometimes it was to a fault. It became a list of things you should do and not do. Um, and some of those things in those lists were not necessarily the way the Wesleyan holiness or the Presbyterian holiness understood holiness. Like for in our tradition, you know, you couldn't drink or smoke or dip or, <laughs> or chew, uh, had certain clothes you need to wear, you know, certain where you, some words you can't say. Um, it just very strict holiness was very, um, it, it was very task oriented, if you will. Um, and of course, the Wesleyan holiness tradition, of course, there's drinking. You can drink alcohol in Wesleyan tradition. So holiness, while it was an emphasis, it was not sort of the same list of things. Um, and I think now what we have to really rethink is where did we, what were the strengths and challenges and weaknesses in all of the holiness uh, traditions and rethink uh, biblical holiness in light of sort of history, a praxis-oriented approach. You know, what is it that um, we believe and what is it that we should not believe? And what is it that um, we can draw from our heritage? And, you know, and it's a continuous back and forth to try to understand. Instead of throwing out holiness altogether, we really do need to rethink holiness and own the tradition, even in places where we need to critique the tradition. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny that you said that because I remember my mom said when when she became a Christian, like they couldn't wear makeup and <laughs> long skirts and all that stuff. Being can wear shorts, yep. so it was a, a lot of rules and kind of more legalistic um, it, in the approach to holiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I understood what they were trying to the intent of it, uh, but it kind of got kind of out of hand in, in some instances with the extremes. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we talk about the uh, broader, the contributions of the Black Holiness movement to the to to the larger Black Church, uh, what 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 would you say those contributions are? Well, are they- uh, well, one was um, the freedom of worship. Um, the many of the mainline or the broader Black Church, which came out of slavery, the folk religion of um, of slavery. Uh, many of them sort of drew upon, on the one hand, the slave tradition, and on the other hand, they uh, they tempered the tradition uh, based on the black slave, uh, the white slave master uh, way of understanding the church. So you have a little of a mingling of, of on the one hand, black folk tradition, and on the other hand, cleaning it up to be more proper, to be more proper, uh, as it were. Black holiness of Pentecostalism freed the black person to, to uh, like uh, people like Charles Mason, he included the ring dance, which was clearly an African practice that much of the broader black church 
had sort of shunned the AMEs, the Black Baptists, the CMEs. They didn't all include full expression of the spirit the way that the slaves did it in the plantation, how in the um, meeting, what they call it, meeting places uh, on the uh, on the plantations. Um, so the Black Holiness Pentecostal Church uh, sort of recapitulated that that um, African spirituality, and it became a way of stirring up the spirit. You know, we had a, growing up, we say, you know, let the spirit have its way, stir up the spirit, uh, let the spirit have free course, and the dancing in the spirit and all. That, the, 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 the Black Holiness Pentecostal Church really did bring that back to the church, and now it's very difficult in neo-Pentecostalism to really know where the Black Pentecostals are in terms of worship and where the Black Baptists and Methodists, they kind of all have an expression of spirituality that seems to be very similar. Well, um, when I was growing up, at the there was New Hope Baptist Church down in uh, Manchester, Georgia. New Hope Baptist Church was originally called Macedonia. Well, there were two Macedonias. There was a white Macedonia and there was a black Macedonia, and they were just across the way from each other. Now, they date all the way back to slavery, where the white folks had their church and the black folks had their church. And um, so, but later on, New Hope changed their name from Macedonia to New Hope to gain their own identity. But the thing that they kept was, or the, the thing that they kept was this sort of black orientation to church, but it was cleaned up because they did not allow guitars in the church. They did not allow a lot of dancing and expressions that they had to, in those days, the Baptists uh, would get excited and they would be quickly taken out of the church or calmed down. And that became part of the black um, Baptist uh, characteristic there in the deep South. You get excited and people sort of contain you. Uh, well, when I was young, my, my brothers and I started a group called A7 and we had guitars and um, actually I should before my group, there was another group in my dad's church called the Childs Family. And um, we they were the first one to bring guitars into New Hope Baptist Church. And I remember when we got to the door, there was a question of whether we could bring the instrumentation in the church. Uh, and they asked the pastor, and the pastor said, yes, that marked history of that church. Well, since then, now they've been dancing in, dancing in the church. There, there's freedom of expression. So I feel that even my upbringing in the Black Holiness Pentecostal Church was part of that, uh, influenced part of that change, change, at least in our small town, uh, where uh, Black Baptist and Methodist churches suddenly open it up to the spirit. And uh, so to answer your question, I think not only in my small town, but across the country, that has been part of the influence. Um, not only the freedom of expression, of spirituality as it pertains to worship, but also charis, char, the charismatic uh, side of things, speaking in tongues, the prophecy, um, the gifts of the spirit, they are also now influencing uh, the broader church. And uh, we have the Black Holiness Pentecostal Church to thank for that. Mm -hmm. When we talk about, uh, you mentioned um, uh, Bishop Mason and uh, founder of the Church of God in Christ, uh, you talked about him introducing the ring dancing um, to 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 uh, the church. Um, how was he received by other black black church, mainline churches um, and black Baptist churches? Because uh, one thing I think when we talk about black church 
um, people don't always consider the diversity within black churches and um, and some some of the tension that we're even against uh, different denominations, um, even in, in American church history. Uh, what was, did he receive any pushback um, from um, churches when he introduced that? Yes. Um, now, I, I, I think that we should nuance it. Like he didn't introduce it as much as he reintroduced it, right? Because it was present on the plantations. Uh, it was not present in the majority of the mainline black churches as sort of central to the expression of worship. He uh, sort of affirmed it and uh, it became part of what it meant to stir up the spirit. Now, um, and it became very much uh, part of the identity of the Church of God in Christ. But he didn't even read, he wasn't the only one who was doing it, right? Because they even had that at Zusa Street, uh, where the Zusa Street mission with um, William Seymour, um, that was a critiquing of the Zusa Street, even in the newspapers of Los Angeles, um, where they were, you know, pointing out sort of some of the expressions that they called Negroisms or heathenisms. Uh, but this was before uh, Charles Mason came along. But Charles Mason affirmed it and re and really included it as part of the formation of the Church of God in Christ. And he was met with some pushback um, from even some of his uh, black counterparts. But um, but it was a mixed bag because there were people that are being that were being drawn into it early on, and even there were Baptist churches that were allowing some of this to happen in that churches early on and they were not necessarily leaving the black and the baptist brand or the methodist brand but but i think what what we have to say point out with that said because that's the way times change right they don't all just sort of change at once there are folks who buy into a different opinions as you move along so yes he had pushback but i'm not going to say that everybody pushed back because that's just not the case Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful. Yeah. Um, for those who don't are listening to this and are not familiar with Azusa Street, because I realize that we've been talking about it uh, with the assumption that everybody knows, all of our listeners know what it is. Uh, before we end, I just want uh, to you to kind of explain it for for people who may not know or have never heard of Azusa Street. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so in um, early 1900s, there was a, a black pastor who was himself a Nazarene pastor. Uh, he was, um, his name was William Seymour. He was, um, had one eye and um, he, his parents were slaves. So he was a son of slaves. But of course, in the early 1900s, right after the Reconstruction, there was a sense in which black people were trying to learn and lead their churches. And he was hungry for the word. So he'd sit in a class with a, well, he couldn't, he was, black people were not allowed to sit in the classroom with white people. So there was a class and there was a, a, a guy who was getting a lot of recognition for, as a teacher. His name was Charles Parham. He was teaching a class on Acts chapter number two. And, and uh, so William Seymour just wanted to listen. So he sat outside in the hallway and listened through the cracked door at what the white uh, teacher or professor, as it were, was teaching about Acts chapter two and um, the emphasis on the gifts of the spirit. And they, Parham was saying that that was present for the church today. Well, that really struck struck um, William Seymour's interest. He thought if it's if God is pouring this whole spirit out to us today, then I want it. So he went to Los Angeles 
Uh, he did a little bit of a travel, but to sort of get to the point, he ended up in, in Los Angeles where there were a group of ladies who were also seeking for the spirit. And, and uh, he became the sort of leader of what became known as the Azusa Street Revival in 1906, because as he, they started to seeking the Lord for the spirit, uh, the spirit was poured out on them. And there, there were white people and black people started coming from all over the country, end up in the same space. And it drew a lot of public attention because it was the worship space that really was the uniter between the races uh, in the early 1900s. Um, so the newspaper, uh, Los Angeles Times, would write about how black and white people were worshiping together and white women were falling into the arms of black guys. And they did it. They wrote it in a very pejorative way. But what it really captured was how the spirit was um, was uniting the races. And um, there was a historian who wrote in those days, Frank Batterman, who said that um, the color line was was being washed away in the blood. And it was mm. phenomenal how people were being united because of the spirit, and it spread all over the country. And, and people like um, Charles uh, Mason heard about it, and he went down to Azusa Street because he wanted it, and he was baptized in the spirit. And he was a, a black Baptist pastor who left and started his own church because he believed in the gifts of the spirit, and his own church became known around... 1914 as the Church of God in Christ. So the Church of God in Christ was born out of the Azusa Street Mission. And then you got other movements as well, the United Pentecostal Church, which was a white church. And out of the Church of God in Christ came the Assemblies of God. So the Assemblies of God really has the same founding um, bishop as the Church of God in Christ, Bishop Charles Mason, but they split because of uh, racial issues. So it's interesting that Azusa Street was a uniting uh, washing away uh, the color line in the blood. And then there were organizations that were born out of that. And then they split for racial reasons. And also PAW and UPC came out of it uh, for racial reasons. So I think um, on the one hand, Azusa Street was really about the uniting of the spirit uh, of people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we really need a renewal of that because, uh, as you know, even in this country now, the race issues have resurged and so we really need another Azusa Street revival, don't you think? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one, one that keeps us together throughout. Yeah, one keeps us together. <laughs> back together or whatever. But yeah, that's Azusa Street. To answer your question, Azusa Street revival, 1906-1907. Um, that's when the um, when it all happened in 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 California uh, on Azusa Street. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's helpful because uh, I, I think. There's so many things that are that you share that mm -hmm. people kind of see. Some people kind of paint Azusa Street as uh, um, Johnny Mac charismatic chaos, um, yeah. <laughs> and paint yeah, yeah. Off of them. <laughs> in, in that in that way. Um, so I, I think it's it's helpful that you you articulated that way. Um, if people want to to know more about the contributions of the holiness movement, Pentecostalism, what resources would you would you recommend for them? Dr. Estrelda Alexander uh, has written extensively on sort of the history of um, the black holiness movement. I'd say she's probably one of the key scholars uh, in it. And she wrote a book most recently called Black Fire, 
So that's a book that I would encourage people to get. They need that as a resource. Uh, other books have been written by people like Vincent Sinan, who is a historian. He's a white historian who has really written. Charles Fox, one of his uh, students, uh, wrote a book on William Seymour. And there's a lot of uh, primary documents there uh, about the movement. Um, I would say that if you if you start there, they have a great they have great bibliographies in both of those books that can really guide one to different directions beyond that. But those two books came out of the academy as um, as some strong material for us to begin our study. Awesome. Well, how can people get in contact with you on social media and sure. and all those things? Follow me on Instagram at D-R-A-N-T-I-P-A-S. That's at Dr. Antipas, at Dr. Antipas, A-N-D-R-A-N-T-I-P-A-S. That's um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Dr. Antipas L. Harris. I'd love to, to, to be your friend if you'll be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But my website is www.antipasharris.com. Uh, or you can uh, email me at drantipas at antiposharris.com, drantipas at antiposharris.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Harris. I really, really appreciate it. I'm honored. I've been thrilled ever since I learned of uh, I can have an opportunity to have this conversation. So thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode you can tune in to all our past episodes at www.ju3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.